Happy Easter, everybody. I hope you've had a fantastic time worshiping with us so far. Um, what an awesome day. A day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Not sure what you were expecting with the resurrection story, but there's something that happens when you ask kids to tell you their version of what, of what happened in Jesus' day. You can get some hilarious stuff from this. And, you know, obviously today we're here to celebrate Easter and the resurrection, right? And a holiday like this, it's one of the big holidays of the year, it comes with certain expectations, doesn't it? You know, one of the big expectations is churches advertise everywhere. Churches that, like, don't have any billboards or anything, any other time of the year, they have banners for Easter. Church people are coming for you for Easter. You know, one of the things you expect is a lot of time with the family, painting eggs. You know, they never turn out like that. Every time I see pictures online or, I'm, you know, my wife's into Pinterest and stuff like that, I, I see these things that look really pretty. I'm like, no, 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 that's not reality. The reality of painting eggs is you try to balance that dumb egg on that wire thing, and then it slips and falls in, and then you end up with a mud-colored egg that's some variation of purple. Right? That's what ends up happening. You end up with a lot of, you like one blue egg and then a lot of purplish mud-colored eggs. But also with going with families is you always expect to eat on Easter. You know, maybe, maybe, you, maybe your family is all about the breakfast. Maybe your family is all about the brunch. Or maybe your family is all about the brinner. I don't, know, I don't know if you realize this. It's like, it's like all the food companies and restaurants got together and had a meeting and they said, so Jesus rose from the dead in the morning, so we should just serve breakfast all day. That's the rule of thumb on Easter. There's not really lunch, there's brunch. If you're one of those weird people that tries to get lunch on Easter, they're like, no, we've been... We've been booked up for brunch for three months. You expect an Easter egg hunt, right? You know, at least the kids do. I don't know if they're doing it right now and stuff. What they don't show you most of the time is that, you know, once the kids get to a certain age, it actually kind of becomes this more like Lord of the Flies type battle for, for chocolate, you know? Like, like, I've seen kids throw some crazy stuff. Like, then you've got to have parents for referees with the Easter egg hunt. And then along with that, you get the fun thing periodically of having to explain to your kids why there's a bunny on Easter. You know, first of all, why does a rabbit have eggs? <laughs> Rabbits don't lay eggs. And who invited the rabbit to Jesus' resurrection? You know, my daughter's getting to that age where now she asks a lot of questions about everything and she's starting to see when things don't quite add up. And so this Easter bunny conversation is right around the corner. You know, and I don't know if your, if your family's like mine. Easter for my mom is kind of like, it, it's like the Easter bunny is Santa's surrogate, you know? Like, the Easter bunny came in the middle of the night and brought you a basket, you know? You, I know you're really anxious about Christmas, so here's something to hold you over. Here's some chocolate and a DVD that you haven't watched for 10 years. You know, like, that kind of stuff. The Easter, this is a big deal in my family. My mom is all about the baskets. We're going to go spend time with my family later. And I'm very curious to see what's coming in my Easter basket. That's not negative. I love my Easter baskets. I'm a grown man and I still look forward to an Easter basket. She always gets me peanut butter and chocolate, which are the two best things on the planet. Um, but then, of course, always, if you're here for Easter, you know that we're going to talk about the resurrection. We're going to mention a little bit about Jesus, hopefully, right? If not, you're in the wrong place. 
You know, 2,000 years ago, Easter came with a very different set of expectations. Easter morning wasn't a day to celebrate. It was a dark and somber day of mourning. Because the Friday before Easter, 2,000 years ago, the disciples had witnessed the death of their Messiah in one of the most brutal ways possible. The man who they had changed their lives for, they had given up everything for, was gone. And his death to them wasn't a celebration. It meant the end of their futures. What they talked about doing, it meant the end of their plans. It meant the end of hope. They, they thought Jesus was going to be the king that was going to bring back the sovereignty of Israel. Jesus' death, was, was the, the Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago, was one of the saddest days in the lives of the, of the disciples. And even though he had told them he was going to die and come back, after what they had witnessed, their expectation was that their Lord and Savior was lying in a tomb. It was over. They were shattered and didn't know what to do. Then lo and behold, some disciples start telling the news that he's back, that he's alive. He rose from the dead. But if you were one of his disciples, what would you think? What would you feel? Hearing that your hope, your, your Savior was apparently back from the dead, would you believe it? Imagine if one of your close friends or family members that had passed away, imagine somebody came to you and said, they're back, they're alive, I know you saw them, I know you mourned them, I know you had a funeral, but they're back. This is where the disciples were 2,000 years ago. And as significant as Jesus' death was, Jesus' death meant only that he died as a good man and a miraculous man. All of us are going to die one day. It is the most basic human promise that we have in this life. We will all die. So it's not the death of Jesus that made him significant. The resurrection is what was going to make Jesus the Lord and the Savior. Paul says something very powerful in 1 Corinthians. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. What Paul is trying to communicate to us here is that, is that this day, the resurrection, was the most important day in all of mankind's history. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then nothing that we are doing here matters. There's no hope of heaven and anything beyond this life. Christianity is a lie. Let's go home. This was the place that the disciples were in 2,000 years ago. 
This was Easter for Jesus' followers. So when Jesus comes back, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1, it says, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. I'm not sure what you would expect Jesus to do during his resurrection time. But the Bible tells us that Jesus spent 40 days trying to help the apostles, his physical brother, and his disciples to believe that he was really back. His 40 days weren't a time of miracles. It wasn't a time of healing. It wasn't a time to preach to the world. It wasn't a time to fly around Rome and show everybody that he was legit. His 40 days was spent trying to convince the people that loved him the most, I'm really alive. And everything is different now. He spent 40 days fighting for the faith of his disciples because he knew if they believed in the resurrection, it would be the game changer for them and for us. This morning, we're going to put ourselves in the shoes of some of the apostles. And we're going to let Jesus fight for our faith in the resurrection. If you really believe that today we are celebrating Jesus conquering death, then like I said, we are celebrating the most important moment in all of mankind's history. The most important moment for you personally. The title of our lesson here this morning is 40 Days in the Fight. Let's say a prayer. God, I just want to thank you so much for the opportunity that we have right now to, to, to sit at the feet of the resurrected Jesus. God, to meditate this Easter, this day that we celebrate Him rising from the dead. God, that, that, we, that we get a chance to, to listen to Him, try to move and convince our hearts that His resurrection is real. It happened, and it's changing everything for us. I pray, God, that You will move here this morning. That you will let that the word will, will sink deep into our hearts and to our minds. That we will we'll move aside our preconceived notions. That you'll move me out of the way, God, so that your message will be preached this Easter Sunday. We love you so much. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. After the death of Jesus, the disciples were in shock. They were hopeless. They were finicky. And they were afraid. But what's powerful is that one by one, Jesus starts appearing to them. First to the Marys. Then to Peter, the other apostles, his brother James, and the rest of his disciples. And it's kind of crazy. When you look at it, you know what he does a lot during the resurrection? He eats. He's back from the dead, and he was hungry. Maybe that's where Easter brunch comes from. It's just Jesus just wanted to eat a lot during the resurrection. But it's part of him showing, look, I'm really back. Let's have a meal together. Yeah, don't mind the holes in my hands. Let's have some food. He appears to them at times when they were hiding in lo- behind locked doors. It's actually a hilarious study. You know, going through this a couple of weeks ago, I was looking at the book of John, and three different times it describes a situation where the disciples were hiding behind locked doors because they were petrified of everything that had happened. They were worried the Romans were going to come in. And it says, Then Jesus appeared among them 
Okay, and I just said they were freaked out. Now imagine the resurrected Jesus. You're panicked. You're hiding in the locked room. And Jesus stands among you and goes, Peace be with you. There's an exclamation mark there. Read it. It's in the Bible. He did that three times. Like they calm down. They go back to the room. They're hiding in the room again. Then he, Peace be with you. He talks with them. He teaches them. But one of the things that's consistent, as you look at all four Gospels in the book of Acts, about Jesus' resurrection, was that even though they were with him, even though they watched him eat, even though they heard him, they touched him, they still struggled with owning that he was really alive. And we're going to look at two interactions with Jesus after his resurrection that highlight what really keeps us from believing and owning the resurrection of Jesus for ourselves. Because we're no different than they are. Number one, point number one is the demon of doubt. You know, the resurrection story in the Gospels has several references to variations of the word doubt. And we're going to look at a guy who gets a bad rap in the Bible for it. Turn over to John chapter 20. Starting in verse 24, says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger in where the, uh, and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. See, told you. (laughs) Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Then Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Thomas is a guy in the Bible who gets a bad rap. He's known in the Bible as Doubting Thomas. But really, I think his reputation is largely unfair. I think Thomas was one of the only people that had the guts to say what everybody else in the room was thinking. He's like the guy in class. You know, high school students know about this. You're sitting in math class. You don't understand the problem, but don't you dare raise your hand to make it known that you don't know what you're doing. But then there's that one guy who goes, wait, uh, teacher, what does this mean? And you're like, thank you, God. Thank you that somebody said it. That was Thomas. Thomas was wrestling. He had heard, he had heard from all these people. All the stories start pouring in now that, oh, he's back. He's back. More and more people are saying it. But he's struggling. And he doubts, man, how, how can this be real? You know, doubt is an interesting thing. In its essence, doubt is the enemy of faith and belief. It chokes out your ability to believe in things beyond what's tangible and right in front of us. But the truth is, we aren't born with doubt. When you're young, faith tends to come pretty easy. 
My daughter is three and a half years old, and she believes in a lot. Unicorns are not make-believe. Those are very real to her. Matter of fact, she wants a unicorn for her fourth birthday. And she's convinced she will ride one, she will pet one, and they will match their outfits together. This is not fantasy to her. This is very, very real. Her faith is genuine in so many different things. You know, it's hard sometimes as an adult because we're so cynical in our nature. Like, I have to fight not to crush her imagination sometimes. Teenagers. They actually believe in a lot of things pretty easily. Teenagers believe that love and romance is easy. You know, we have a Bible talk that we do at La Quinta High School. And the last time I was there, uh, from the walk from the classroom to the front office, I saw, I think I counted seven different couples in a short walk that were just holding each other, dreamy-eyed, looking at each other, nuzzling. They were so in love. And it came so easy. But the truth is, life has a way of crushing your faith in things you believe. As we get older, you start seeing enough tragedy, enough death, enough disappointments. It can be hard to believe in anything, let alone miracles. And my brother, and I've shared this at different times, uh, my brother's been a drug addict for 10 years. And it has been an ongoing battle uh, in our family, just learning how to love and be patient through all this. Because the truth of the matter is you can't fix somebody in an addiction. And, and this has been really hard for me. My brother is one of my best friends. He was one of the best men at my wedding. Um, before he started down his road with using drugs, we were extremely close. And this has been a really hard thing for me to wrestle with over the last 10 years. And, there been, and, and I've, I've prayed and fasted for him off and on during that time. And just recently, um, uh, a friend of mine we, we, you know, that loves God as well, we decided that we were going we to fast and pray together once a week uh, for him. And so we started that up again. This was several months ago we started this up. A number of things have happened, but, but I kind of got to this place about two weeks ago, where I started asking myself, does this really matter? Is this doing anything? I've been praying and fasting for him for 10 years. Does God listen? Surely something could be better by now. And to my shame, I'll, I'll just admit, I stopped praying. Because even now, I still struggle with my doubt. And this is where Thomas was at. I don't think he was intentionally cynical or intentionally doubtful. Or that he didn't want to believe that Jesus was alive. I think life had taught him that people don't come back from that. Death was final. That's a wrap. 
And then Jesus shows up. Then Jesus inserts himself into Thomas's life. And what's powerful about this story as you look at it is what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus could have gone to Thomas and said, Thomas, why are you being so faithless? Why didn't you believe what everybody was telling you? Didn't I tell you I was going to rise again? What's wrong with you? He doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus walks up to Thomas. He says, Thomas, come here. Give me your hand. Let me show you the holes in my hands. Feel this. Feel the scar on my side. Feel that wound. He meets Thomas exactly where he's at to help him deal with his doubt. He confronts him in his doubt and then he calls him to faith. And what I love about this is that this is exactly what Jesus does for us. He does it in giving us the truth of the Bible. If you're one of those people, the evidence of history, archaeology, there's so much stuff to prove. Look, this is real. This is true. This is not just a story. This really happened. But I think the best way, that kind of like what he did here with Thomas, is not really in the evidences that are around in history and archaeology, but the best way that he confronts our doubt is by giving us the physical representation of himself and what his love is really like in the people around us. This is part of what challenges me about my doubts about my brother. It calls me to evaluate, okay, where, why am I doubting? What am I missing from this? What about, what about Jesus and his resurrection? Am I missing in his power that I would feel like I want to give up? And even over the last couple of days, one of the things that hit me is, man, Jesus didn't give up on Thomas in the middle of his moments of struggle. And he didn't give up on me. So I can't give up on my brother. I'm not done praying for him. I'm not done fasting for him. I'm not done believing in what God is going to do in his life. Because Jesus did resurrect from the dead. And I've seen the evidence in my life. What are your demons of doubt? What keeps you from believing in the power of the resurrection? Maybe your doubts have nothing to do with Jesus or the Bible or any kind of factual thing. But everything about your doubts has everything to do with you. And how you feel about you. My second point is the serpent of shame. We're going to stay in John. Turn over to John chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus. He got it figured out, Amen. Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the other two disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. 
Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish in it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. See, he's eating a lot. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. We're going to stop there for the moment. So what, just, what the Bible just tells us is that Jesus had already appeared to his disciples twice before this time. And this time it's not Thomas, it's Peter that's struggling. One of his closest confidants. One of the men, one of three men that saw miracles that even the other disciples didn't get to see. And he's not wrestling with doubt that Jesus is alive. He's wrestling with the fact that now that Jesus is alive, he has to face the reality of betraying and denying him three times. His issue with Jesus wasn't a faith issue in as much as it was the way that he viewed himself. Could I really face the reality of what I've done looking into the eyes of my Lord? And now that Jesus is back, instead of trying to be and try to be with, instead of trying to be with him, instead of being fired up and just glad that he's back from the dead, that his, that his sin isn't permanent, he decides to go fishing. Now, this seems meaningless by itself. But fishing was his old life before Jesus. I think he was doing this because it was familiar to him. He was flirting a little bit with his old life. You know what? Maybe, maybe it was better when I was a fisherman. And I didn't know who Jesus was. And I didn't follow him. And ultimately, I think what he was doing was he was avoiding Jesus. His shame was keeping him from his Messiah. But just like Jesus, and I love this, he inserts himself into Peter's life just like he did with Thomas. And there's this miracle, you know, and if you're a fisherman, you probably understand this. So they've been fishing on the left side of the boat all night, catching nothing, and Jesus says, try this side of the boat. If you get the logic of this, like the, there's not a difference between the left and the right side of the boat. The fish are going to be there one way or another. But he's Jesus, and so the right side of the boat is what works. And they catch all these different fish, and finally Peter wises up and he realizes, I've been an idiot. And he runs over to Jesus. And he invites him over for breakfast. But what I love about this is after they're done eating, Jesus calls Peter on his issue. He doesn't let him just run away from, from what he'd been running from. 
He challenges him on it and he confronts him in his shame. Let's look at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, well, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you did not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Again, in this interaction, we have to stop and take notice of what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't go to Peter and say, Peter, you wretched moron. You saw the transfiguration. You watched me rise people from the dead. What are you running from? He invites him over for some food. Because men know that sometimes food helps to deal with whatever's coming. And he asks him the same question three times. The same way that Peter was asked if he knew Jesus and denied him three times. Jesus confronted the reality of what he had done. You know, I, I imagine oftentimes Peter was a very tortured man. That every single time he heard a rooster crow, he couldn't help but think about what he had done to Jesus. About the fact that he had three opportunities Three times to say, I know who the Lord is. But Jesus confronts the reality of his sin and his shame. And he asks him a very powerful question. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? This wasn't a question that was meant to condemn him. And this wasn't a question about, Peter, do you feel love for me? He cared nothing about Peter's emotions in that moment. What he was doing was he was asking this broken man who couldn't look his Savior in the eye, are you ready to give me your heart again? Are you ready to turn your life back over to me? I know what you did. That's gone. It's over. Peter, do you love me? Each time that question had to twist his heart. Knowing what he had done. But Peter said, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus took his statements and the shame from his denials and he told Peter that he wasn't done with him yet. Your sin, your choices, your shame will not define you. Because I still have plans for your life. 
And he said, get up. Because it's time to come follow me again. Shame is a powerful thing. Shame feeds us with lies about our value to God. Our value to others. And the reality of it, and this is part of why I think this is maybe one of the most devastating things that we can deal with, because it can completely block us from the truth of the resurrection. Because if you are caught up only in your shame, why would you believe that there's a risen Savior out there that's still not done with you yet? Sometimes we'll do everything we can to avoid the truth of where we are and what we've done when we feel ashamed. And just like Peter, it can feel easier to run. I'm just going to go fish. We'll run to our jobs, to our hobbies, social media, entertainment, addictions, all in an effort to hide the shame of what we really feel about ourselves. So many times in my life, shame has crippled me from seeing Jesus. In my past battles with pornography, with relationships with women that I had that were ungodly, lies that I've told, and even now as I battle with selfishness, with my pride, with anger, with self-idolatry, with not loving my wife, with not loving my kids, so much of me and my nature, I just want to run and hide. This is one of the scariest things that I could ever do. It's to stand up in front of you all as a minister and tell you, this is how jacked up I am, and I have a hard time looking at myself in the mirror. But I know all of you are like me too. Jesus will confront you on your sin and the truth of who you are. What's amazing about this is just like what he did with Peter here. The difference between shame and the power of the resurrection is that shame condemns you for your sin and leaves you to suffer in hiding. Drowning yourself in a bunch of brainless things, hoping it'll go away, all the while you feel your insides rotting away in your heart because you're so ashamed of who you feel like you are. The resurrection gives you hope of repentance and new life. The message of the serpent of shame is you're too far gone. You knew better. You're such a failure. No one will accept you if they really knew. God won't listen to you. God may forgive some people for some things, but me, because of this, nope. Shane will tell you, you're fat, you're ugly, you're worthless, you're hopeless, and no matter what you do, you're never going to be good enough. But the message of the resurrection is I love you. You are worth dying for. There's hope. You can change. I'm not finished with you yet. I still have and I still want good things for you. 
Nothing you have done or ever could do will be bigger than the power of the resurrection. If you will own and identify the sources of your shame, Jesus has a life that is so much greater in store for you. I don't care if you think you're a Christian or not. One of the most incredible people of the Bible was the Apostle Paul. Before Jesus, he was a vengeful, angry, and violent man. He killed and jailed Christians out of a completely misguided sense of righteousness. He was the least likely candidate to be a disciple of Jesus of anyone. Then he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus inserted himself into Paul's life. And everything changed. In a letter that Paul wrote later in his life, he writes something about the resurrection for all of us to consider. This is the last scripture we're going to read together. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 through 17, Paul writes, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. Paul says some powerful words here in these verses. He said, being convinced that Jesus died and resurrected is the source of everything. Paul is literally telling us here, Every, everything that I am, everything that I do stems from the fact of the truth that I am convinced, without a doubt, that Jesus died for me and rose again. But he also says that if you really believe this, Paul tells us here that this truth demands a choice and an action. If you're not convinced that Jesus rose or died and rose to give you new life, then today on this Easter, I want to implore you. Confront the demons of your doubt and the serpents of your shame. Jesus' death buries the sin and shame of our old life And the truth of his resurrection gives us the opportunity to have new life. And just like Jesus spent 40 days during his resurrection trying to wrestle with the hearts of his disciples because he knew if they will just get this, if they will really believe that I have resurrected, then they will get to know what a new life really looks like. That shame doesn't have to conquer your life anymore. Doubt doesn't have to rule your decisions. There's something bigger and beyond death. And he beat it. Whether you're a Christian or not, Jesus is giving us a choice this Resurrection Sunday.
to believe and choose the power of the resurrection. If you're visiting with us, I want to urge you, ask whoever brought you out to study the Bible. Learn how to confront your doubts and your shame with truth and hope. Find out what it means to really take part in the resurrection. Because the resurrection is not about sitting in church once a year on Easter. It's not even about showing up on Sundays. The resurrection will change your life forever. Every single day is different. If you really know what the resurrection is. Right now we're going to take communion together. And if something stirred in you today, I want to urge you to pray about your doubts and your shame. Pray for the things that are keeping you from acknowledging the power of Jesus' resurrection and what his death means for your life. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. And if you did not receive communion, just go ahead and raise your hand and the ushers will come and bring you, will, will pass one down to you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. God, I want to thank you so much that your love for us is not contingent upon our doubts and our shame. That you don't leave us to suffer in silence and suffer in darkness, God, that you fight for our hearts because the resurrection changed everything. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to die as a perfect man and thank you, God, for raising him to new life so that we can have hope. God, I pray that no one here will leave, will leave today without coming in contact with the power of the resurrection. God, we love you so much. We thank you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.